Hello, everyone. This is Chris Miller, your co-host of your absolute favorite podcast of all time, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, today, we just want to ask you, if you're enjoying it, to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive content, and you can help out Rob and Chris do all the things you love so well. Remember to hold fast and enjoy the show. straight from the headlines. Australian court rules farting at someone may not be bullying. An Australian appears, appeals court on Friday dismissed a bullying case brought by an engineer who accused his former supervisor of repeatedly breaking wind towards him. The Victoria State Court of Appeal upheld a Supreme Court judge's ruling that even if engineer David Hinks' allegations were true, flatulence did not necessarily constitute bullying. Do you think it was because this judge was a member of the Fart Club? Mm. Could be. Could yeah, be we spent all that time on that episode talking about whether or not the Hellfire Club is still around. What we should have been talking about. Yeah, there's really no reason why we still couldn't have <laughs> Fart Clubs. First yeah. rule Fart Club, don't talk about Fart Club. Yeah. Second rule Fart Club, eat lots of protein. <laughs> <laughs> Third rule of Fart Club, tune your arse with Dale and Juniper Water. Oh, I forgot. Did we ever figure out if that was juniper water? Uh, I started no to Google it, and apparently, like, everything I found for juniper water was just water with juniper berries mm-hmm. in it, which probably shouldn't be drinking. I think it's more of an herbal treatment. Yeah, but, like, everything I know about, like, juniper is bad. At the very least, it's going to loosen you up. <laughs> well, I guess so. So, Hinks said he would take his court, his case to the High Court, Australia's final court of appeal. The 56-year-old is seeking $1.8 Australian dollars. This is... 1.3 million U.S. in damages from his former employer. Hinks testified that he had moved... I like that you converted it. <laughs> ...that he had moved out of the communal <laughs> office space to avoid Supervisor Greg Short's flatulence. Hinks told the court that Short would then enter Hinks' small windowless office several times a day and break wind. Hinks, quote, alleged that Mr. Short would regularly break wind on or at him. Mr. Short thinking this would be funny, the two appeal court judges wrote in their ruling. I'm down with on him. <laughs> Hinks said he would spray short with deodorant and call his supervisor Mr. Stinky. <laughs> now there's the bully. Yeah. Quote, they would fart behind me and walk away. They would do this five or six times a day. He'd lift his bum and drop his guts. That was officially said in the court document. Yeah. So, you yeah, that's like, what's going on on the other side of the world. <laughs> like, I'm kind of picturing him doing it. And I like to imagine, like, he does, like, the leg lift and, like, scrunched yeah. face. Because that's easily the funniest way to, like, fart in a crowded room. You ever play fart tennis with anybody? <laughs> I remember the... Uh, Lift the leg a little bit. It, it was, a, like, I, I believe it was a Yahoo Answers question that rapidly turned into a meme. But it was uh, somebody asked if you could shoot a fart with a... You remember the Air Zookas? Oh, yes. And the question like the answer was really detailed like you need a a loader and a, <laughs> a loader and a gunner we can figure this out and i have a way to beat the beat but yeah it turns out that you can and uh you can launch a fart across the room with an air zooka uh this is an official endorsement of the air zooka <laughs> brought to you by these ropes and renegades that's right we're back i'm your host rob north and i am your co-host chris miller and today we are talking about Something that's, it's not exactly going to be a barrel of laughs, more a repeatedly holy shit kind of story. Yeah, we're going to say holy shit a lot. Yeah. There's going to be some some expletives, uh, definitely from our side. Mm-hmm. I would hope whenever we start mentioning some numbers, there are expletives from your side. Very because so. holy shit. Yeah, because we're talking about the 1692 Port Royal Earthquake. Now, in 1692, the English settlement and pirate haven of Port Royal, Jamaica, was utterly destroyed by a massive earthquake followed by a tsunami, nearly wiping out the entire population and literally sinking the town into the ocean in a turn of mayhem rarely matched in history. This this whole chain of events is like a Billy Mays infomercial. Like We're going to talk about something awful that happened, but wait, there's, there's more. more every time. Without a... I hope our hearts eventually just exploding from too much blow came. Eh, whatever. So Don't in this square, episode, man. So in this episode, there will be some science involved, but Chris and I will do our best to explain things as best as we can in order to keep the story as interesting as possible 
without losing anything in the dry science. I'll try technology. to do the uh, like the what are we gonna the, the Star Trek example like, uh, like yeah. blowing too much air into a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> so we have two primary sources for this episode. The first has the super metal ass title of. Apocalypse sixteen ninety two. Can we make this the episode title, or is that guy gonna beat us up? Uh, that guy's gonna beat us up. Uh, so yeah, Apocalypse sixteen ninety two. Empire, slavery, and the Great Port Royal Earthquake by Ben Hughes. Now, what was it we were saying about this book? That... Uh, I will. I'll, I'll screenshot and post on our yeah. Instagram and probably our Twitter the reviews. And uh, it was uh, their Amazon reviews, and everybody's talking about how fantastic the book is, and they're all right. Oh, I ate it up. I yeah, uh, you have the physical copy. I have mine on my Kindle. Mm -hmm. um, it got. I think it was a two star review, not a one star review. But one guy was pissed off because it just had too much information. Oh, God forbid you learn a thing or two. <laughs> I, I guess he was looking for. I don't know, like a one of the grocery store like romance novels like yeah. there is not a picture of a man uh with long blonde hair with his shirt billowing in the wind and a lusty wench in his arms yeah, quite, and quite usually like a white <laughs> horse in the background but honestly i prefer the photo of fabio after he got hit by the goose on that roller coaster but that's just me. i have a fabio story but i don't i don't exactly remember the name of one of the teachers from our high school uh <laughs> stay tuned for that my sister knows the story you might have to skype her in on one of these yeah. episodes but yeah this is a this is a book that has about 225 pages of material quite honestly about 50 pages of it is fabio's book and the after yeah effects. correct um but it's still stuff that's interesting to me because i'm a I, I was fascinated with how much came after, mm -hmm. especially in the book. Yeah. So our second source has a slightly less metal title. It is a true and perfect relation of that most sad and terrible earthquake at Port Royal in Jamaica, which happened on Tuesday, the 7th of June, 1692, where in two minutes time, the town was sunk underground and 2000 souls perished with the manner of it at large in a letter from thence. By a Captain Crockett, first name unknown. I looked, I couldn't find it. I searched for it for an hour. Captain Tubbs Crockett. Tubbs Crockett. <laughs> Captain. Okay, he has a first name, Captain. Yeah. Uh, by. Yeah, written by Captain Tubbs Crockett, uh, published in <laughs> London in October 1692. This was basically a long-form pamphlet telling the story of what happened. He had to leave Jamaica to sail up to Miami, and then buy a white Testarossa. Yeah, some, some wicker <laughs> shoes. <laughs> So let's start by talking a little bit about Port Royal itself. Now, the town sat on the southern coast of Jamaica. On the end of a narrow spit of land about eight miles long that protects a large natural harbor that was then known as Cagway Bay. It's now known as Kingston Bay. The Spanish founded the first settlement there in 1518, but during their rule of the island, it never grew larger than a tiny little fort and a few dozen buildings meant to tend to the needs of any ships docked in the harbor. Now, that all changed when the English conquered Jamaica in 1655, they made their first landings at the site of Port Royal, and they wasted no time in enlarging the settlement and reinforcing the defenses on that site, constructing a second fort and over 200 new buildings in less than four years. Port Royal soon became a central settlement in English Jamaica, essentially the unofficial capital of the island, and its docks and facilities were central to the shipping of the island's main resource for the English, sugar. But soon, Port Royal's status as a hub of the sugar trade would be supplanted by its role in another essential Caribbean activity piracy. Hell yeah! Woohoo! And that's where we link into what we're about. <laughs> in 1657, uh, Governor Edward DeLay decided to aid in the consolidation of England's territorial gains in the Caribbean and eliminate a large part of the economic competition by inviting the Brethren of the Coast to make Port Royal their base of operations and prom promising them legal immunity with the English crown. This was a pretty common thread mm -hmm. that these guys say, you know, it would be a really good idea. Bring some pirates in. Yeah. Why was that ever a good idea? <laughs> I mean, it is kind of a cheap, ready-made navy. But, it, but like, this, this is not a private to your navy. These are violent men who steal things. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's, and then, that's and then you I get basically what you happen whenever the, the, the town itself kind of turns from, you know, a trade port into a town that has one tavern for every ten people. Mm -hmm. That is an absolute goddamn it's, fact. It's, it's denser than Carson Street. Street. Right. <laughs> Probably cleaner in Carson Street, too, yeah, to be honest. Uh, yeah, if you don't know who the Brethren of the Coast were, they were a group of pirates that were descended from the original cattle and pig hunting Buccaneer, uh, from which the word buccaneer is derived, Freelance, uh, freelancers who were soon being attacked by the Spanish and kicked off of every island they were operating on and turned to piracy in order to defend themselves and make a living. 
Now, although they were made up of men of a dozen different nationalities and had no official allegiances, the Spanish were their favorite target, and the English government had no qualms about pointing them at Spanish shipping and coastal settlements and letting them loose. Now, this kept the Spanish on the back foot, preventing counterattacks to retake Jamaica, and it helped bring lots of quick new money into the developing settlement. Now, over the next few decades, Port Royal's growth continued at a frenetic pace, including the construction of three new forts, bringing the total to five, making it the most well-defended settlement in the Caribbean. And by 1692, the settlement had grown into the largest English settlement in the Caribbean with over 6,500 residents and 2,000 buildings. What was truly central to its identity, though, was its reputation as a true pirate haven. Henry Morgan's attacks on Panama and Portobello started out from Port Royal, as did Christopher Ming's attack on Campeche, and the famed Dutch pirate Rock Brasiliano made Port Royal his base of operations. Its location was central within the Caribbean as a whole and allowed easy access to the shipping lanes between Spain and her settlements in Central and South America. Its large natural harbor allowed for a safe haven from bad weather and the Spanish Garda Costa and gave crews a place to repair and careen their ships. Now, by the time of Henry Morgan's attack on Panama in 1671, Port Royal had become known as the Sodom of the New World. <laughs> and every resident was said to be either a pirate, a cutthroat, a tavern keeper, or a prostitute. I found a pretty fun document here because they were famous. Their, their number one export, I mean, outside of all the sugar and mm-hmm. everything they went through. But the one thing that they actually manufactured was Kill Devil Rum. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, there was a document from 1651. I believe it was from a newspaper. I couldn't find it. It was from a PDF. I think I still have that one. I believe it's on my phone. Uh, it was the, <clears throat> it reads thusly, uh, the chief fuddling they make in the island is rum bullion, alias <laughs> Kill Devil. And this is made of sugar canes distilled and a hot, hellish, terrible liquor. <laughs> it was, and apparently this shit was so bad and so strong that sailors that that had access to actual Port Royal rum, uh, whenever they didn't have it for a couple days, they would go into DTs. So these guys are detoxing, and they would hallucinate and usually start attacking each other. What the fuck was in there? <laughs> so this is the kind of rum you can melt a wagon wheel in. That's whenever we like, talk about wow. like like pirate rum. Yeah, these guys are tripping balls. They're getting dope sick from it. Like what what is in this? But that's why it was Kill Devil years. rum yeah. because they would they would hallucinate, see each other as demons. Yeah, and start murdering each other. Oh, God. That is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So wow. Yeah. Uh, Man, it, like in, in Chicago, always puffs out its chest about Malort. Yeah. Man, we <laughs> Malort just tastes terrible. I've never murdered anybody after that. We've come it. a long way between that and. Can I get some more soda in this mojito? Oh, John, please don't. Please. Yes, don't. sir. Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so Charles Leslie, a contemporary writer and historian from Barbados, wrote of Port Royal's pirates, "Quote: Wine and women drained their wealth to such a degree that some of them became reduced to beggary." They have been known to spend two or three thousand pieces of eight in one night, and one gave a strumpet five hundred simply to see her naked. That's a shitload of that's a shitload of dough, man. That's about that's okay. So <laughs> I, I this this took some complicated math and. Well, it's, and it's also difficult thing. pieces of eight. That's nine thousand bucks. I was going to say that's they also fluctuated wildly, like depending on what building you were in. Yeah. <laughs> So I went off. So the value of a piece of eight in 1671, which is the year I went with, that's nine thousand dollars plus today. Man, so, that's, you're subscribed to their private Snapchat. Yeah. <laughs> and this hangs, they are changing. Oh man. So to continue with what Leslie said, they used to buy a pipe of wine, place it in the street, and oblige everyone that passed to drink. End quote. And it wasn't just the pirates that partied hard. And I love that. I love this. This is one of my favorite quotes. Dutch explorer Jan van Rijbeck said of his passing visit to the port, The parish of Port Royal gathered to drink from the large stocks of ale with just as much alacrity as the drunks that frequent the taverns that serve it. End quote. So parents were, parents were getting drunk off of the beer. <laughs> He's not the only one that talks about drunk pets. Yeah. <laughs> He's not the only one, but it's usually the funniest pet is definitely parrots. Mm-hmm. I was like, you can put beer out for a dog, and it's always something. I say, hey, look at that dog drinking beer. <laughs> dogs drink beer. Dogs are idiots. They yeah. they look at what a dog eats. <laughs> but watching a parrot drink a beer, it's something I'm kind of down with. That dude on the north side that has the parrot, do you think it drinks beer? 
I, I, I don't know, and I don't think we can find out without somebody from the ASPCA really getting well, harassed. He's a crazy guy. He's usually the game. He put it on Louie one day and then oh, just walked away. That birthed meaner and shit. Yep, I know. I was there. That birthed meaner and shit. Like, you there. look at his I, face. Like, it's fine when it's around the dude, but when the dude goes away, you can tell that bird's nervous. And Bucko Louie is a very unflappable man. Yes. And I've he never just seen him froze stock still. He didn't even blink. He just looked like <laughs> past the bird. Like he wanted to keep the bird in the peripherals, but he didn't want to make eye contact with this giant parrot. Yeah, because then they would have to fight to establish dominance. I don't like his chances. Do you see the size of that thing? Yeah, that was a big bird. <laughs> so to give you an idea of how much piracy played into the local economy, it's estimated that after the men from Henry Morgan's raid on Portobello debarked back into Port Royal, they injected 75,000 pounds or $115 million in today's money into the local economy. This is all at once. Jesus Christ. Now, incomes from the sugar trade, by contrast, were estimated to be about 10,000 pounds a year for the entirety of Jamaica. So this is this gives you an idea of how much money piracy was bringing in. The local census in uh, 1691 had 49 taverns in the old quarter of the town alone. You mentioned 10. Yeah, I was saying this town only, was only like 30 acres. Yeah, uh, 51 acres. Okay. Yeah, 51 acres. At oh, place. yeah, that's right. It was like 30 acres end up uh, moving. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> so although Port Royal's dependence on pirates decreased into the 1680s and 1690s, the fortunes of the town continued to rise. It was on track to become a true economic powerhouse on par with some of the larger ports in coastal Britain. But Port Royal had one major problem one that its population was completely unaware of, where it was built. So the southern coast of Jamaica happens to sit on a significant boundary line between two tectonic plates. The Caribbean plate, which makes up, which takes up most of the Caribbean south of Jamaica, extending out to Central America and east to the Antilles and the Windward Islands, and the Ganave microplate, which stretches for about 680 miles west to the Cayman Islands, east across to the island of Hispaniola, where Haiti and the Dominican Republic are today, and north to the southernmost part of Cuba. Now, where these plates meet is known as the Enriqueo Plantain Garden Fault Zone. And it's this fault zone that was actually responsible for the devastating earthquake in Haiti in 2010. It's also known as a strike-slip fault, where the movement along the fault line is normally side-to-side -side with very little vertical motion. And the frequency of this side-to-side -side motion generates is going to be important to us a little later on in the story. Now, Jamaica itself had long been prone to seismic activity, of which the Spanish were very well aware, building their homes low to the ground with deep central foundations, and they built them on firm ground surfaces, digging down all the way into the bedrock, if possible. Now, the English, famous for their disdain of foreign know-how, had a propensity to build high brick structures in the northern European style, wherever was most convenient. The it, area... it, whenever it wasn't convenient, they just moved some sand. Mm -hmm. Like, there we go, we'll just put a fort on all this sand. Yep. Seems fine to me. Yeah. Now, the area around Cagway Bay, geologically speaking, is a disaster waiting to happen. Almost the entire ground surface around the bay, and especially on the spit of land on which Port Royal sits, is made up of a series of coral reefs and islets linked by about a 100-foot deep layer of sand, gravel, and silt. Now, on either side of the sand peninsula, the water deepens rapidly, taking away the stability of a wide-low foundation. Imagine, imagine it as a wall one brick wide. Yeah, it's, more or less. This yeah. is actually how the island itself was formed. Mm -hmm. Like Jamaica was formed by an uplift from this, the the slip strike. I mean, this was the, yeah. what we're going to talk about is a pull-apart basin, which is exactly what you think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's like, this is how Jamaica got formed in the first place. But unlike the area where Port Royal sits, most of Jamaica is made up of pretty firm limestone bedrock. And mm -hmm. that's going to make a big difference later on. So in 1692, as spring turned to summer, dire portents began to appear of some sort of catastrophic event. Along with, quote, black streaks under the sun, whatever that means, nature began to give clues to something not being quite right with, quote, springs and fountains becoming troubled and unwholesome, a strange calmness of the air, and when birds forbear to warble forth their pleasant tones. So birds aren't singing anymore. Groundwater starts tasting funny. Something's really not right. Now, this also, this, this cues into what we know a lot about seismic events, when, when, what wildlife and pets do. Yeah, we were just talking about uh, the 2004 uh, tsunami in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. uh, there were videos, like, 
you know, this was kind of like the dawn of the smartphone. Yeah. Um, of people watching all the birds just take off. Yeah, they just bolted. Just everything. Uh, the people that were saved that were on one of those like weird elephant tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, the elephants were like, no, fuck this, and just went inland. Yeah, they just booked it. Yeah, just took off, and there was nothing they could do. Well, so I was, I actually experienced a small earthquake when I was in California, I want to say back in 2014. I mean, it was just a, it was so just my a, buddies, my buddies got in a, uh, like a 4.7. Well, one lived in L.A., and uh, the other guy just like mm-hmm. eight hours after he landed, and like three hours after they ate a bunch of mushrooms. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it was it was a pretty good one. That that'll turn your trip around. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. It was very brief. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked up the one I experienced. It was only a three point two. I mean, it was barely anything. But you can, you can. I mean, this one this. made the news. Yeah. In I was working the next day. I was opening yeah. the next day, and all I could think was, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm sure the building was fine, but they probably were not. No. <laughs> yeah. So the one I went through, we. I mean, you could barely feel anything move i mean but you, like the glasses in the cabinets we we just gotten back from the ralphs and i think it was burbank or sherman oaks or something we had a case of beer and the bottles were rattling around in the case of beer and it, i mean it was it was actually like huh wow that's interesting I, yeah, it's know, it wasn't scary or anything i wasn't afraid the building was going to come down but yeah that was like a, a 3.2 earthquake but right before it hit every dog in the neighborhood started barking about a minute before it started Every dog in the neighborhood went nuts. They had a cat in this apartment, and this cat went crazy. Started zooming around, meowing like I've never heard a cat meow before. And then about 60 seconds later, boom, earthquake hit. These guys all would have known this was coming if their parents were just fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Parents were sleeping it off. Yeah, the parents were too drunk. Yeah, like, Your early warning system is. Uh, we disabled. know what time this happened. Mm-hmm. Found the watch, Which we'll like, get to, yeah. Yeah, but like, yeah, they were sleeping one off. Yeah. So, uh, also, a temporary embargo had been declared for all unescorted ships due to the possibility of nearby French warships. I, I, we should mention that England and France were at war at the time. Surprise, surprise. Pre industrial French, <laughs> French yeah. and British sailors were murdering each other. And uh, so a large number of mer- a larger number of uh, a larger number of merchant vessels than normal were in the harbor. And you have the morning markets in full swing, so it, it's the it's a busy time in Port Royal, and as is the case with most earthquakes, over time frictional tension built up to the levels where the energy waiting to be released was greater than that of and I did the math here of all the atomic weapons tests in the world's history going off at once. Every everything from the Manhattan Project to the Tsar Bomba tests in 1954, if all to every test they've had since. The underground tests in North Korea from 1944 to now, they all went off at once. It would still be slightly less than the energy released by this earthquake. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Yeah. The earth is a powerful this is, thing. These are the uh, the same nuclear tests whenever the Soviets were doing them. They decided they were going to, they made, they made these monstrous wells, basically, mm-hmm. and decided to protect everybody. They were going to cap it with a big heavy steel cap. And then it just shot it out, and nobody ever found the giant steel plate. It shot a plate into space, mm-hmm. and it is a thousandth, realistically, of a percent as powerful as this. Yeah. And it shot uh, probably, I don't know, those things were, I mean, these, these wells were big. They're probably 25 feet across. So, uh, I don't know, say like three tons mm-hmm. of giant plate steel shot yep. it into space. <laughs> Probably landed in the Caspian Sea if we're talking about the test that happened near Baikonur. Yeah. yeah. So God. during the late morning of Tuesday, June the 7th, 1692, that energy finally released. As both of the plates took a sudden jolt to the left, unleashing a series of shockwaves through the earth. At about 11.30 a.m., and we'll get to how we know what time it happened later. Which is fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> a low rumbling began to be heard in the town, and then the ground beneath everybody's feet began began to, quote, Roll and move beneath their feet, so it's not going. It's rolling there are like a waves wave. in the ground. Rather than quickly subsiding as most minor tremors had before, the earthquake quickly began to intensify. The rumbling grew louder and more intense, with one survivor likening it to quote a rustling wind or a hollow thunder, with puffing blasts like those of a match made of brimstone. End quote. The ground began to shudder and rise and fall in waves 
hurtling the steeple of St. Paul's Church to the ground, immediately crushing a group of about 15 congregants in the street, its bell making an ominous metallic clanking as it skittered and jumped across the street. This is Michael Bay shit. This is about an, and this is probably a 500-pound church bell, and it is, it, and it's, it's jumping around like a dog toy on the ground. People began to panic, taking to the streets and running in all directions, or staying rooted to the spot, too scared to move. And then a terrifying splintering sound soon began to emanate from the ground, and the true destruction began in earnest. It's at this point where the weakness of the ground on which the town was built begins to show, due to a property called seismic liquefaction. When earthquake shockwaves are unleashed upon loose sediment or sandy ground, the grains of the sediment begin to vibrate and the tensile strength of that ground surface is completely eliminated. Now, if you're near groundwater or seawater, it will begin to quickly filter down into the settlement, soaking in like a giant sponge. And, this, and again, the sand loses all of its tensile strength. It turns into a loose sludge, and its ability to support any significant weight is totally fucked. Structures begin to collapse one after the other immediately as their foundations simply sank into the earth. Entire buildings and key sites seem to just melt into the ground, some of them seeming to remain intact but sinking downwards until their roofs disappeared beneath the rolling sand. Fissures in the surface opened up and would swallow people whole, only to close again, burying them alive or crushing and suffocating them. Thames Street, the street built along the quayside facing the bay, including its crenellated seawall, and all of the shops, homes, and storehouses along the waterfront simply slid into the ocean quickly sinking in 30 to 40 feet of water. The large limestone blocks that made up Port Royal's five forts began to completely come apart. The mortar no longer able to hold them together, and the barrels of their heavy iron cannons were dismounted and began to roll around the battlements, crushing scarlet-coated militiamen as the foaming and spitting water, now worked up into a high, hard chop by the energy of the earthquake, began to rise up and pull the rapidly disintegrating fortifications from sight. The only part of the town's defenses to survive was half of the sturdily built Fort Charles on the town's western point, as the foundations were strong and deeply built, whether through design or sheer luck, onto a raised area of limestone bedrock, although the stones of the fort were, quote, sorely, safe, uh, sorely shaken and rent, end quote. Though the town's powder magazine, contained in a tower within the, within the fort, survived entirely unscathed, with the powder still dry and the cartridges ready. Now, as early as two minutes into the quake, the water had advanced more than 500 feet into the town, washing away large parts of the already unstable sediment and taking with it many of the town's residents, both dead and alive. Due to the particular geology of the area, not only did the seawater come up over the water lines into town, but it soaked up through the now liquefied settlement. sediment. Most of the town's great and good had made the mistake of staying in their homes, thinking that the large, sturdy construction would save them but almost every leading figure in the town met their end as these buildings collapsed, brought down by their own weight into the shifting sands. The port captain, the Royal Navy attache, the captain of the militia, almost all the leading clergymen, and almost every single one of the wealthier merchants in town disappeared into the sand or beneath tangled piles of brick, stone, and wood, never again to be seen alive. This all happened in two minutes. Less than. I mean, we went from first indication of the earthquake to... Buildings dropping into the sea in 30 seconds. Yeah. Dropping into the sea or getting washed out into the bay. Mm -hmm. You'd watch entire blocks, like city blocks, as you're running like hell down the street, pass you and sink into the bay. Or drop vertically, vertically into, the into the water. And this is before the tsunami hits you. Because mm -hmm. it's coming. It's coming. So, in uh, I have a quote from uh, Robert Rennie. Yeah, uh, in his 1807 uh, magnum opus uh, and history of Jamaica, which you like to always see, uh, all the wharves suck and sunk at once, and in the span of two minutes, nine tenths of the city was covered with water, which was raised to such a height that it entered the uppermost rooms of the few houses which were left standing. the The British were famous for not making one story homes, so these are two, two stories, three stories, two or three. Yeah, and honestly, it was probably three because it was very cramped in there. And we said the the city is what? It was 51, 50, acres. 51 acres. I mean, <clears throat> Pittsburgh now, from like, if you're going from like Mount Lebo to Penn Hills, which is technically what Pittsburgh is, is probably 2,500 acres. Mm -hmm. Well, this is like the entire 
area around the stadiums on the North Shore. Yeah, pretty well. You didn't have a lot of room to yeah. to kind of grow because it was just on a little spit of mm -hmm. land. But as, as far as an acreage comparison goes, this is like going from Rivers Casino down to where PNC Park is, mm -hmm. and all those parking lots and everything, and all those bars just disappearing under thirty feet of water. And the tops of the highest houses were visible in the water, surrounded by the mass of vessels which had sunk along with them. Yeah. People were, Jesus people were standing on the roofs Christ. of two-story buildings, and they were up to their waists in the water. Good Lord. Yeah. I actually have another quote here. Uh, this is according to an eyewitness named Walter Rooting. Quote, Every home was shaken down, save for eight or ten that remained from the balcony upwards above the water. That's... That's a lot. John Pike, a joiner by trade and leader of the town's Quaker Society, lost his home in 20 feet of water, along with his wife, his parents, his in-laws, all seven of his children, and all ten of his servants. Well, he was able to make it to the top floor of his neighbor and fellow Quaker Thomas Trapham's house, which survived because it was made of wood and not heavy enough to sink into the sand— and it was also able to flex with the motion of the tremors. Uh, Trapham survived by clinging to a portion of the chimney with his two young daughters clinging to his neck. So if you compare this to stories that you hear from the Banda Aceh tsunami in 2004, and this is identical. Who was it? It was like, oh man, it was somebody famous. I can't think of who she was. Um, her husband put her in the tree. Yeah. He was swept away. Oh, I feel terrible. I should know this. Uh, there was also the, the, the um, Nate Berkus, the interior designer, um, who was always on uh, the Oprah Winfrey show. He and his he and his new husband were. I don't know if they were oh, on vacation. Petra Nemkova. Yeah, Petra Nemkova. Yeah, uh, her husband. She was getting swept away. He grabbed her, like threw her up into the tree. He was holding yeah. on to, and then his branch snapped, and they never found. Yeah. This. And that, oh, God, all of this is just absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. And this is in a time, in 2004, we know how this works. Mm -hmm. In 1692, we don't know how this works. No. Like, all we know about this uh, from all the letters yeah. that we've read is that it was God's judgment for all the demon realms. Well, psychology as a science isn't even going to start for another 100 years. Yeah, a little There's bit no more than 100 years. Things. A little north of 100 years. Yeah. So the area known as the Palisados on the east side of town at the narrowest point on the spit of land was completely dissolved by the liquefaction of the sand and the rising seas, and it left Port Royal completely cut off from the mainland for nearly 400 yards. So a quarter mile of land just disappeared into the ocean. Uh, the town's graveyard was destroyed, tombstones uprooted and dashed to pieces, and hundreds of decomposing corpses were pulled out of their graves and washed into the ruins of the town. Uh, church rector Emmanuel Heath, was running down, uh, running for his life down Church Street on the seaward side of town when he watched the stoutly constructed gun battery known as Morgan's Line, along with nearly 100 people taking refuge atop it, disappear in seconds into a massive fissure in the ground. Uh, the diary of a merchant named John Uffris survives, and it gives us his account of events in the center of town. Quote, The shake was so violent that it threw people down on their knees and sometimes on their faces as they ran along. It was a very difficult matter to keep one's legs. The ground heaved and swelled like a rolling sea, by which means several houses were shuffled and moved many yards from their original places. The streets cracked and opened, shut quick and fast. In some, many people were swallowed up. Some the earth caught by the middle and squeezed to death. The heads of others only appeared above ground. Some were swallowed quite down and cast up again by great quantities of water. Others went down, never more were seen. Other openings swallowed up great houses, and out of some issue whole rivers of water, spouting up to great heights in the air, which seemed to threaten a deluge to the center of Port Royal. These water spouts were accompanied with ill stenches and offensive smells, by means of which openings and the vapors at that time belched forth from the sky, or belched forth from the earth. The sky was in a minute's time dull and reddish like an oven. That That, that is, that's, that's, that's like a reading out of the book of Revelation. This exactly is exactly what it is. And that's why you start to get a lot of these these stories that come out, a lot of these letters that come out. That yeah, say we'll that. talk about that. 
We'll talk about I mean, that. You've got to figure these people are running down the street and fissures are just opening. Yeah, just cracks in the ground. And but it's not they're not staying open. It's not like boom and it's boom and then and then three seconds later, yeah, close it back again. up. And now if and the way liquefaction works is there's a, a frequency that it operates in. Mm -hmm. So if you get sucked under during this liquefaction, so and and like I said to Rob earlier, I looked for it, I couldn't find it. There was a gif where mm -hmm. they, they blow water through it looks like a big like rubbermaid tote uh full of sand. I'm sorry, they blow air. And a guy just puts his, his arm in, like he points his fingers and he puts his arm into his elbow and there's no resistance. No resistance. And it's super weird. It's like he's dunking it into a bucket of water. Yeah, pretty much. And that's what's happening. But mm -hmm. as soon as that harmonic frequency changes, it solidifies. So yeah. if you're not burped back out, which it's, which, which does happen, and we happen. have a couple guys that, that and we're going to talk I gotta about. Say, I know we're talking about like disaster here, but that's kind of funny. Well, I mean, it, it, I, come on. I mean, you, just seeing somebody. We're going to find the silver lining in all of this. this. Is the, somebody disappears, and then five seconds but, later, a spot on water. If you're not one of the lucky on. ones that yeah. fires you back into the air, and that harmonic frequency changes. The soil solidifies. Yeah. You're trapped under you 15 feet of sand. Yep. God almighty. I mean, Jesus Christ. you're going to suffocate assuming you're not crushed to death. Yeah. But just imagine you swimming through sand and all of a sudden it's sand again. Yeah. Because 15 feet of waterlogged sand weighs in. Go to the beach. Fucking Go to the beach right now. Uh, dig a hole up to your knees. Mm -hmm. Fill that hole back in and get out of it. It's very difficult. Now do it again up to your waist. <laughs> even harder do it again up to your chest now go 30 feet we, we recommend you bring a friend you trust <laughs> right. you're gonna do this yeah. by the way uh so we have another account from a mrs acres telling us that she quote lost sense for the half part of a minute end quote and she and several others were swallowed up by the earth before being quote vomited forth into the sea she emerged she emerged unscathed same for a save for a small scratch on her cheek which quote did but just draw blood. Those beside her were far less fortunate, quote, held fast in dismal torture by the earth, locked about their arms, legs, and bodies. I imagined myself on the brink of boundless eternity and put up a short ejaculation to Almighty God, begging him to pardon my sins and receive my soul. So, yeah, this is an apocalyptic uh, experience for people. Oh, absolutely. By the way, 10 points to Chris for not giggling at the word ejaculation. Hey, look, I already I have a list of things I don't laugh at. Uh, yeah. I had Fudge Club over here. Uh, how many times he <laughs> said breast in one episode? I'm a professional. So the ships in the harbor fared no better during this event. Uh, within a couple minutes of the beginning of the quake, a large, ten, a large 8 to 10 foot tall wave caused either by a large nearby landslide into the ocean, which causes a more classic tsunami, or possibly from an event known as a geological slump, where a large portion of underground settlement sediment shifts into the bottom of the bay, displacing a huge amount of water, swept across the harbor, snapping anchor cables and tossing the ships around like driftwood. Almost every vessel sustained damage, masts and spars snapping as they crunched together. Many were beached far up onto the shoreline at the far end of the bay, and nearly 20 ships capsized. A French prize vessel was driven into the middle of what was the marketplace and caught between a few of the still-standing buildings. And the 20-gun frigate HMS Swan, this is a 400-ton ship, was driven across town by a wave so high that she smashed the upper stories of several houses to pieces. Now, although the Swan remained afloat and would sail again, a dozen of her crew had been killed, and she lost all of her rigging, anchor, cables, and guns. Now, it wasn't just Port Royal that suffered during this quake. All across Jamaica, buildings were damaged and some collapsed completely, although the firm limestone bedrock of the island meant liquefaction wasn't going to be a factor. Although nearly 1,000 acres of sandy shoreline on the north end of the island did disappear into the sea, along with 13 people. In Ligwinea, now Kingston, all the houses were destroyed and water was sloshing out of the tops of 40-foot deep wells. But records indicate that only four people in Liguinea lost their lives. St. Jago, now Spanish town, was also heavily damaged with similar casualty figures. Landslides occurred throughout the island, the largest being a judgment cliff, which displaced nearly 8 million cubic meters of earth and killed 19 people. 
The entrance to Cagway Bay was soon dammed up with trees, debris, and timber from both buildings and ships. And if you look at a scale map, the entrance to Cagway Bay is three quarters of a mile across. Yeah, the, the land surface was displaced <laughs> over 800 meters. Yeah. That's insane. Half a Whenever mile. It, it comes from Half the highest point on the island, yeah. which you've been in Jamaica, is not high. Mm -hmm. And dams up the bay. Yeah. Jesus. Which, at this point, is absolutely laden with corpses. Yes. Now, based on accounts, modern seismologists estimate that the Great Port Royal earthquake was actually not one major tremor, but a series of three. They, they think that the tectonic plates made three quick shifts. Which makes a lot of sense for a couple of reasons. How long it lasted. It, it, and it's the duration of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they say that this quake went on for three, four, or five minutes. You look at a lot of major other major earthquakes, last a matter of 30 seconds to a minute normally. And it was also hit by several distinct waves. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it only makes sense. But that's even, like, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. seriously, like, what the fuck? That is, ugh, man, that, that's got to feel like it never ends. Imagine how goddamn terrifying that would be for 30 seconds. Yeah. Now stretch that out for 10 times that. Right. Fuck out of here. Jesus. I mean, no Christ. wonder the casualties were so high. Now, what we do know for sure is that at 1143 a.m., people were still being buried alive in the sand. How do we know this? Well, we found a pocket watch. Yeah. We found a pocket watch uh, in 1959, uh, frozen at 1143. 1143. Intact. Completely intact. In, in a sediment deposit. Not only do they know... Like it, we know the time of the watch. Yeah. We know the watchmaker. Wandell and, and Sons. And where it was made. It's from the Netherlands. Yeah, it was made it in was so it was made, perfectly intact. It was made in the Netherlands in 1686 by Blondell and Sons. And it was trapped in, and they were able to know for sure because it was trapped in a pocket of debris buried by this sediment that was all dated to 1692. I mean, some of these buildings sunk directly into the sand in a matter of seconds. 30, 40, 50 feet. They are as well-preserved mm -hmm. as shit in Pompeii. Yeah. So it's this is still, I mean, Port Royal's still there. Uh, it's nowhere near as big as it was. But it is one of the most important archaeological sites of the 17th century because yeah. it's a moment frozen in time. In time. Which is like Pompeii, a moment yeah. frozen in time, like lovers in bed, like they, they like married couples holding each other, uh, children, children being guarded by dogs, and now there was that one guy apparently jerking it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what, man? I'm not here to judge. I mean, something to be said for coming as you're going. <laughs> oh no, we didn't even rehearse that joke. What? <laughs> So the estimated magnitude of this event was a whopping 7.5 on the moment magnitude scale, Good. which is like an improved Lord. version of the Richter scale. Now let's think about the power of that event. Now seismic magnitude is measured on a logarithmic scale. So with each round number on the order of magnitude being about 32 times more powerful than the last. So a 7.0 magnitude event, rather than being 40% more powerful than a 5.0 magnitude event, is instead releasing 1,024 times the energy. So over a 1,000 times as powerful. Like putting too much air into a balloon. Wow. <laughs> there's there's my yeah. Star Trek reference for everybody. You're welcome, guys. In, in terms of recent events to compare the magnitude of this earthquake to, uh, it would carry about 1.86 times the power of the 7.3 magnitude Haiti earthquake in 2010, and about 14 times the power of the 6.9 magnitude earthquake that hit Kobe, Japan in 1995, which killed five and a half thousand people in 30 seconds. Now, once the event itself was over, it was time to survey the damage and count the casualties. It's estimated that as many as half the population of the town, possibly some 3,300 people, were killed in the course of this event. Now, accounts estimate that some of the some 2,000 structures in town, as few as 200 were still even partially standing. And most of these were severely damaged and washed out. 
So much of the sand on the peninsula had been washed away that of the town's original area of 51 acres, 15 and a half remained above sea level. And even today, at some points, with some parts of the land reclaimed, the shoreline sits up to 600 feet further back than it did at its 1692 boundary. So survivors took refuge wherever they could, aboard ships in the bay, on board route, uh, on board roofs. They took boats across the bay to higher ground, fearing another event. Others searched desperately for family, friends, or simply got into groups and began praying for salvation, forgiveness, or, rep or repentance. Church rector Emmanuel Heath joined a large group of survivors on a patch of ground still above water to repent for the, quote, heinous provocations, end quote, that brought the Lord's judgment down on them. He wrote, quote, when I came into the street, everyone laid hold of my clothes and embraced me, that with their fear and kindness, I was almost stifled. I persuaded them at last to kneel down and make a large ring. I prayed with them near an hour when I was almost spent with the heat of the sun and the exercise. They then brought me a chair, the earth working all the while with new motions and tremblings, like the rolling of the sea, insomuch that sometimes when I was at prayer, I could hardly keep myself upon my knees. So the whole time they're trying to figure out what the hell just happened, <clears throat> they're getting hit with aftershocks. Before the ground even starts, stops quaking, people are already looting. Yeah. They're, they're breaking into warehouses, they're breaking into homes. They're cutting fingers off of dead men to get the rings. Yeah. Like, this is all happening in real time. They also immediately start searching for a scapegoat. Mm. And as it always does, blame soon landed upon Port Royal's small community of Jews. Uh, though the synagogue and all of the small Jewish quarter on Lime Street was just gone. Every, every building in the Jewish quarter was destroyed. An account stated that several of the survivors were lynched in the following months. Heath noted that among his mostly Protestant congregation were, quote, several Jews that knelt and answered as the others did. They were heard to call upon Jesus Christ, a thing worth observation, end quote. Yeah, and um, although many set about trying to rescue survivors and recover the dead, many of the remaining residents set about looting, breaking into homes, digging through rubble, stripping the dead, as you said, cutting off fingers to get at the rings that were caught on swollen fingers. Uh, a degree of comeuppance was achieved when a damaged warehouse collapsed and killed five looters. Um, elsewhere, dogs fed on the dead or even some of the still living, chewing on the heads and limbs of those partially buried in the sand. I'd like to take this time to say, Jack, you're a very good boy. <laughs> uh, several slaves took advantage of the confusion and breakdown of the social order in order to either make their escape or take revenge on particularly cruel masters. There were many murders in the ruins of Port Royal. Uh, all records and accounts put together only ever identified 121 of the dead by name. And so things wouldn't get any easier in Port Royal for the survivors of the events. Almost all of the town's food and drink stocks had been destroyed, and to arrange relief supplies was going to be a slow, arduous process. Lawlessness reigned in Port Royal, and there is no figure given for the number of murders, rapes, assaults, and robberies that may have been committed after the event. Many of the survivors fed, fled inland to find shelter, only to be turned away by town leaders trying to clean up their own damage. And a refugee camp was established at the unusually named site of Kill Clown, near where Kingston is now, and where the Royal Navy immediately began transferring French prisoners of war to place among the unfortunate survivors. Yeah, and still don't know why. I mean, a ready-made site, I guess. I don't yeah, know. I, I don't really know. It, it seems like they had enough on their plate yeah. where that doesn't that doesn't hold. I don't know. I did. There is not always a lot of logic. No. <laughs> in the actions of the Royal Navy in the early 17th century. No. So um, for months, bodies continued to wash up on shore, sometimes several hundred miles away, with some of the dead ended up washing ashore in Hispaniola, or as far away as Puerto Rico and Saint Kitts. A eight miles to the east. Now, it didn't take long for starvation to set in, and with the unsanitary conditions also factored in, disease soon ran rampant among the survivors with yellow fever, typhus, and diphtheria taking a huge toll. It's estimated that in the summer following the quake, as many as 2,000 of the survivors of the event would lose their lives to injuries, disease, and hunger. That's 2,000 survivors. Yeah. That's there were 6,500 people there total. 
which means that up to 5,000 plus out of 6,500 didn't survive this event or the aftermath. Insane. That is a absolutely insane. And I do have the name of a survivor, Louis Galdi. Ah, yes, he was a uh, he was a Huguenot. He was a French Huguenot. Correct. He actually oversaw the reconstruction of St. Peter's Church, Mm. which we talked about later with the bell. He died and was buried there 47 years later. He is the luckiest man in the fucking world. Yeah. He was he was at the church service, ran like hell down the street, watched everybody get crushed by the bell. Uh, the soil around his feet turned into liquid. He sunk, and it's probably about 15 feet, and then mm-hmm. he got burped back up. By, by the earth. Uh, he described it as the earth yawning. Yeah. That is so unsettling. God, that's The earth scary. yawned. Because not only did it open, yeah. it opened slowly, and it made a fucking, fucking noise. noise. And he watched all the people that were in church with him, who he knew by name, mm-hmm. I would assume, because he was a, a church-going man. Like he said, they put him in charge of building the fucking thing. And he was the only one that came back up. Yeah. Uh, on his tombstone, which he is buried there, not far from the church, you can still see it, uh, he claims to be the only man buried twice. Here's a question. How does that not go to your head? I don't know. How does that not go to your really head? How do you not know. get an attitude of hell didn't want me? I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But this is, I mean, this is nuts. This is Miltonian. This is. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, oh, man. So aftershocks would continue with Port Royal until mid-September, hampering rescue, relief, and reconstruction efforts. The reaction among the growing British Empire was one of shock at the severity and nature of the event but not exactly one of surprise, given Port Royal's reputation as the, quote, Sodom of the New World. And the quake was seen as divine retribution for the town's sinful ways. Now, this is still a very, very religious society, too. Cotton Mather threw his two fucking cents out. Yeah, we'll get to Cotton Mather. (laughs) Now, members of the Jamaica Council declared, quote, We are become by this an instance of God Almighty's severe judgment. It should also be noted that it was God Almighty's judgment that saved George. <laughs> so I guess we can kind of put yeah. that, put that, uh, we can let the, the cards fall as they will on those. Yeah, and of course in Boston we have famed New York, uh, New England Puritan preacher and all-around moralistic pain-in-the-ass Cotton Mather. Boy, the Cotton Mather episode's going to be pretty weird. <sighs> and uh, he wrote in a letter to an uncle, simply, quote, Behold, an accident... Speaking to all our English America. Well, here's here's the thought I have. This this sort of registered with me this afternoon. So, what else was happening in America in 1692? Well, Cotton Mather was a busy man. In the, in the late 17th century. So, what what else was happening in 1692 that involved religious fanaticism? Oh, it was the Salem trials. Salem witch trials. Yeah, like I don't understand why concurrent God, with the earthquake. It doesn't. It, it does lend a little bit of credibility here. I'm glad no, no. he uh, took so time the, out the, to be a world man. The witch trials started in I think March of 1692, so it started before this earthquake. And we can we probably can assume with all the shipping routes between Jamaica and Boston that we're still in the triangle out, trade. They they probably found out about this earthquake pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just wondering this. Do you think that Part of that fear of divine retribution or that sense of having to stand up to evil for the fear of divine retribution, do you think that might have fed into the fanaticism of the Salem witch trials? Knowing what I know about Cotton Mather, uh, I feel like he was like that dipshit that carried a snowball into Congress. Mm-hmm. It was like, it's snowing, climate change is stupid. Yeah. Whereas, like, uh, an earthquake ate a town where everybody was a prostitute or a drunk and all the parrots were fucked up. <laughs> I can see him using that. Yeah. Knowing what I know about Cotton that, that was Yeah, it was just a thought I had. I wonder if, you know, if this earthquake hadn't happened, would there be 20 dead? Would, would there not be 20 dead in those trials? Would it be 15, 16 instead of 20? I, I don't know. Uh, it'd probably no, still be 20. There's absolutely no way to conclusively prove it. But They tried to make it higher. <laughs> 20, 20 seems well, pretty reasonable. Well, there were over 200 trials in Salem. Just in Salem. Just in Salem. Just in Salem. There are more witch trials, and we'll talk about those ones too. Mm-hmm. The Salem's the most popular. Yeah. But there's even more. 
and some were shockingly late. Yeah. So in London, word of the disaster set off a major financial panic. Sugar was a booming trade, and all of a sudden, the busiest sugar port in the Caribbean had been wiped off the map, and up to 40% of sugar stocks in English colonial possessions couldn't be processed or shipped. Several sugar companies and shipping firms went bust almost immediately, and stockholders and shareholders and many others sold off their shares in a panic, causing a significant recession on the London stock market. So this had... This event had very, very far-reaching implications. So rebuilding and land reclamation did finally commence, but Port Royal's troubles were far from over. In 1694, the French invaded Jamaica, and at a point very opportunistic on the part of the French because England's defenses in Jamaica were still completely crippled. Uh, but luckily, Port Royal was, pra- uh, and Port Royal itself was practically defenseless because it had five forts. Now it has half of one, half of a fort. Uh, it did avoid severe damage at the hands of the enemy, though. They sort of avoid- avoided Port Royal because they figured there was going to be a pretty big Royal Navy presence there to make up for the forts being gone. Turns out there wasn't. Yeah, it was just full of corpses and disease. I mean, that was a whole that was a whole thing. We could get into it, but we need another episode for that. A large fire in 1703 destroyed nearly two-thirds of the recently rebuilt town. But wait, there's There's more. And a hurricane in 1722 leveled the majority of the town once again. It took like another 60 years of them trying to just be like, you know what, fuck it. Yeah. And and that's why everything kind of moved to Kingston, and that's why Kingston's Kingston now. Yeah. Uh, It wasn't early in our story, but by the end of the story, it is. Yeah, so Port Royal sort of found a bit of a new lease on life in the 18th century as like an auxiliary base for the Royal Navy, but it never really regained its former glories. All the central trade operations were moved to other ports like Kingston, and any government functions were moved first to Spanish Town and then later to Kingston itself. In 1907, another earthquake and tsunami caused significant damage to Port Royal, but not nearly on the level seen in 1692. But wait! There's more. Go on. The way the fault lines are deformed right now has sufficient strain to generate another earthquake of greater than seven. Between seven and seven point four is what seismologists at the University of Barbados are are uh, estimating. And it's not that it's Atlantic Garden fault zone. It's imminent. It's imminent. It's imminent. So. Today, Port Royal still exists as a small, sleepy fishing village of some one and a half thousand inhabitants. Church is still there. Church is still there. George is still there. Mm-hmm. Not a whole hell of a lot still there. Nope. Man. Wow. So yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. That that is oh the my Port God. Earthquake of 1692. The Earth yawned. I guess that's got to be the title. Yeah. But man, I running down the street and just looking at buildings on your left sinking vertically into the sand. Buildings looking on your right, on your right sliding into the passing ocean. you and watching in front of you and watching your friends, your relatives, your pets, your drunk parents, everything just <laughs> disappearing into the sand. And if they're lucky, they died fast. Yeah. If they're unlucky, the ground solidifies again yeah. and they're crushed to death. Probably faster than they can they can suffocate. What the actual fuck? Dude, it's it's all right, we have to end this on a bit of a light note. So I just like to say the drunk parents. They were probably okay. No, just the phrase the drunk parents, the <laughs> name the drunk parents. I want to go back to our episode about the gangs in New York. I think they were missing the trick. There was no gang called the Drunk Parrots, to our knowledge. That would have been pretty good. Well, we don't know about this. There were probably gangs there. They were doing everything else. And I think they were missing out. (laughs) Man. Oh, man. The earth yawned. What the fuck? So weird. Man. So weird. So, yeah, with that that happy laugh-a-minute story, uh, that's going to bring us to the end of our episode. (laughs) Thank God. I mean, I know this is an audio medium, and you can't see this right now, but Chris and I are just staring at each other. It's just like, it's like, like it, it, hands on, like, the side of the head, like, cocked against the table. It's just kind of slumped down. Man, like, we're, we're drinking a couple beers today. I, I'm drinking a Hitchhiker triple IPA, thank God. 
Oh yeah, is it that super super cloudy one I was having a few weeks ago? That you uh, no, that was a in? that was a different one. This mm -hmm. was the this is the RGB. Oh, a yeah. little probably a little past its expiration date, but uh, well, it was still delightful. I'll have left your house by the time you have to pay for that. So good luck. right, yeah, so we're good on that front. But like, I wish I was drinking more. Like yeah. there's birds. Yeah, we're gonna have to have a little ripper manure or two to recover from this. Yeah, it's absolutely no fun. Yeah. Um, punish our livers more because this uh, this was a fun weekend of course um our good friend and uh patreon subscriber patreon, patreon subscriber jojo vanay married his lovely new wife carol congratulations joel and karen we're so proud of you karen and joel um oh uh, was it jojo yeah. and carl was another one yeah somebody <laughs> accidentally removed congratulations jojo and carl uh congratulations Jerry jojo and carl sounds like a wonderful dude um yeah it was a it was a great time um it, yeah, it rained like, for 69 days, and then we had two of the best days ever in a row. Yeah. So that was pretty dope. And, uh, yeah, it was a great day at the ballpark the next day. Yeah, Pirates didn't suck anymore. Yeah. It was pleasant. Coming back. It was a great win. Great win. Great win. We've seen a couple really good ones there, but, man, that one was special. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, just a, a note, uh, we'd like to reinforce this. If you subscribe to our Patreon. We'll come to your fucking wedding. We will come to your wedding. We'll come to your wedding. We'll come to your wedding. We took pictures. We danced. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Whole night. We had dinner. It was, it was wonderful. It was, it was a good time. Yeah. So many cured meats. Oh, man. Artisanal meats. Smoked cheeses. Down the waterfront among the Monhooligans. Man, it was something special. We were, uh, we were at the site of uh, an upcoming episode. Mm -hmm. uh, the Homestead Strike. It yep. started, like, I don't know, 500 yards from where we were. Probably. Thereabouts. I mean, it was yeah. right by the pump house. So, yeah, special thanks to uh, JoJo and Carol for the great time this past weekend. Love you both. Thank you so yep. much, guys. Yeah, it was awesome, guys. Thank you so much. Congratulations again. Uh, special thanks, as always, to our friends, the Bloody Seamen, Pittsburgh's premier purveyors of pirate punk for our uh, use of their music. Check them out at www.bandcamp.com slash bloody semen. Yep, they are awesome. Uh, special thanks, as always, to canine outreach specialist Jack down there on the floor right now. Uh, you can always check us out on social media. You can find me, Rob, on Instagram at MeatNeck. You can find me on Twitter at MeatNeck2. Don't even bother looking for me on Instagram. It's a total waste of your time. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can find us online at, uh, at TRRPod. Uh, you can find us at PodcastTRR on Twitter. And you can send us an email at TRRPod at gmail.com. We'd love yep. to hear from you. Uh, we'd always want... Uh, new suggestions for shows. We'd love to hear some feedback. Please, please, please review, rate, subscribe on everything. Now that iTunes is dying, we'll, uh, we'll figure out what's out. coming out next. I think Apple Podcasts is just going to kind of take over. The, it looks like yeah. they're just going to split everything. Yeah, if they want to do it right, they'll just automatically shift us over. I mean, we're already technically part of Apple Podcasts, yeah. but it looks like like no content. Like if you if you already have like you're subscribed to podcasts, you already bought your albums and all that shit. They're not going away. Uh, we'll just figure out what the new name's going to be. Yep. And in addition to finding us out there for all of our episodes, if you like what we do, if you think we might be deserving of a, of a buck or two a month uh, to support uh, having to buy research material, uh, new new technology to always improve our sound and improve our content. You and we got to host this bitch. Yeah, you can, uh, <laughs> you can subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash trrpod. You can subscribe at a $1 a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, or $10,000 a month levels. If you subscribe at $10,000 a month, you get dinner at Red Lobster on us. Oh, no, it's not on us. Uh, it's, oh, that's uh, right. We split, we the, split the bill 50-50. Yeah, and you can't No, it's 50-50 because we're doing half, that's fair. half of half a check, and then you do the other one. Yeah. But we also get to choose which Red Lobster it is at a time that is convenient to our schedule. Mm -hmm. We are busy men. Mm -hmm. Busy men who like cheddar biscuits. Yeah, I'm working like three jobs right now. <clears throat> Uh, of course. Uh, okay, so next time is going to be uh, a little less of a downer, <laughs> a little less catastrophic. Uh, we're coming up. We're going to be recording around the 4th of July here. So we are going to be joined by our good friend Michael Arnett, Padre of the Renegades of the Rotunda. You know him. You love him. He's a Patreon subscriber. He is. He is. Hopefully. Well, could end up going to his wedding. <laughs> and I then think he's Jeff, next well, in line because yeah. our other Patreon. Jeff's already like, married. Oh, yeah, I was going to say Jeff's married. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we, it's 4th of July, uh, celebrating our independence. And, of course, that meant we fought a war of independence. And in that war of independence, there was a fella that we'd like to talk about by the name 
of John Paul Jones, and I'm not talking about the bass player for Led Zeppelin. Then I have done all the wrong reading. Well, luckily we have some time. Okay, good. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Definitely have a, a drink or roll up something dank and take it to your lips. Everybody to... that's listening to this in traffic is just going to drive their car to the nearest bridge and just just right off it. Yeah, there is hope. Pennsylvania does not sit on a major fault line. No, we're still getting earthquakes anyway. But, yeah. uh, not not big enough for liquefaction. Fracking earthquakes don't cause that. They don't. They barely count. So uh, yeah, take 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 heart in that. Uh, the <laughs> the earth is not going to yawn and swallow you up. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> okay, getting the bad juju out. We'll catch you next time. Pull fast. Avoid the yawning earth.